I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Tommy Moore! Robbie Robbie Weekly. Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in Cork and I'm joined as always by Murray Kinsella of the 42.ie. How are you, Murray? I'm great, Gav. Love this regular part of my week, so happy to be here. How, how's things there? Yeah, hearing your voice is kind of palliative after a difficult week. I've been going for a lot of <laughs> long, pensive walks, listening to a fair amount of Joni Mitchell. Um, but I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I passed the return to podcasting protocols last night. I was delighted to get the opportunity to speak with you guys and hopefully go through a, a few issues in my life uh, in, in relation to my favourite rugby team, uh, but uh, I know I'm on a strict yeah. warning. Chatting to you yesterday on Slack, Murray, you did point out that there is a game going on <laughs> this weekend that we need to focus on, well, apparently. Uh, and therefore, if I do repeatedly infringe with kind of monster-centric rants, I'll be given 10 minutes in the bin, 10 minutes of muted mic yeah. time. Uh, I will test your patience now today, Murray, I'll, I'll say that much, but um, I'm going to try my best to stay on the right side of it. <laughs> I was concerned over the last month, really, because before this, you were on Twitter, uh, I suppose, rightfully venting your frustrations with some of the government guidelines, etc., um, and some of the rhetoric in that sense. And I was worried that that was going to spill into the podcast. So um, now it's monster that I'm worried about. But uh, listen, you've plenty to be annoyed about. So we'll get stuck into that as well. Absolutely. Bernard Jackman, how are things on your end? Yeah, I'm good. I'm looking forward to to hearing you cleanse your soul of monster <laughs> of monster regret. Let's get let's get cracking into that, and then we move on to uh, more positive things. Okay, well, I want to start with Ulster, if at all possible, because I, I think the way we'll order it, out of fairness to all parties, is we're going to look back on what was, I think, the standout result of the weekend in that it was slightly unexpected in Ulster's heroics in Edinburgh. We're going to swing back around to my therapy session with Munster then, uh, within the context of that Leinster game, and then kind of focus on what Leinster did well in that game so that we can swing back around towards uh, a Pro 14 final preview. We'll have other bits and pieces in there as well. We've got some listeners' questions, which I hope to get to towards the end, and we may touch upon Owen Farrell as well, time pending. Uh, but to start with Ulster, and Bernard, I'll start with yourself, because I got the impression from you over the last couple of weeks that you had been actually in touch with Dan McFarlane. Now, you, you don't need to necessarily confirm that, but that he seemed concerned for his players, uh, about his players' form post-lockdown. And yet, for all of his players' heroics in Edinburgh, I put it to you that that was a game actually won by a head coach, in that he showed serious bottling, subbing off Cooney, Burns... He brought on two guys who he himself signed with probably this kind of fixture in mind and it paid dividends, as did the front row selections, paid off hugely. Uh, how impressed were you by McFarland and by association by what Ulster did towards the end of that game? Yeah, very impressed. I think um, I agree with you. It was one It was one in terms of the halftime te- uh, team talk, in terms of the tactical um, adjustments they made in the second half. And then obviously... You know, bringing on the six internationals on the bench, and that told. And I think Cockrell, Cockrell, when he reviews the game, you know, he'll find it hard to understand how they lost it because they were in a very, uh, very good position um, to go win it. But he'd be very frustrated with his bench. Um, his bench, basically, rather than not even not giving an impact, they actually um, they were worse than the players they replaced. And obviously, the Ulster bench came on and. And really upped it. So fair play to Dan. Um, I think he 
he's definitely made some hard calls, hard calls around you know the the starting team, but also uh, you know taking off um, Cooney so early and and you know getting that bench on. So worked worked a treat. Do I think Ulster are in prime physical condition? No, I don't. I still think they're off, and um, but they will get massive confidence and self belief. Um, and energy from how they finished it, and the manner in which they they came back and won at death. So um, that twenty minutes, you know, that they turned it around will be huge for Ulster, regardless. Not just this weekend, but obviously, you know, next weekend against Toulouse. Just that feeling of, uh, I suppose, being able to close out games and championship minutes and championship teams, as Dan calls it. Um, I think it'll be a, a a big boost to them, regardless of the fact that yeah. you know that the first sixty minutes were pretty pretty horrendous. Yeah, it did feel like a seminal moment, Murray. And uh, the flip side of that would have been it would have been equally seminal in the opposite direction had they lost it and had they gone to, into another knockout fixture and really underperformed if they'd continued in the similar in a similar vein as they had played for the opening hour but they did turn the game on its head uh, and it will stand to them in future absolutely no doubt it's a game from which they'll be able to draw upon um maybe not so much necessarily in the final but certainly next season uh did you have any kind of inkling that they had the capacity to turn this game around when it got to that stage where they were down in double digits and really it didn't seem to be going their way like where did the I suppose, where did the spark come from or, or where did the game actually turn on its hinge, to your mind? Yeah, the first half was a continuation very much of what we've seen. Errors in handling, really poor in the opposition 22. They got in there a number of times. Edinburgh's mall defence was very good and, and they sapped that strength from it. Ulster weren't making good decisions on the ball. There was a little bit of space on that left-hand edge of the Edinburgh defence that we saw them go after in the second half. Um, and for me, the most encouraging aspect of it was as they made the comeback, first of all, they fixed their mall. A couple of clever little tweaks. They shift, shifted the drive. They were a bit patient with that counter, uh, counter mauling effort from Edinburgh. But uh, first and foremost, as well, they they stuck to what has got them into this good position. The the style of play that McFarland is back. That collective speed, the the passing of the ball, movement of the ball at pace. That's what they're good at, you know. Even in the Pro 14, looking back in the stats just before we came out, came on, they do pass more than any other team, 170 times per game on average, and we didn't really see that as much over the last couple of weeks. Certainly not in the first half when they got no flow at all. But we saw it in the second half. We saw the tip on passes, the tip ins. You saw the links out the back to to get a bit of width on the ball. I mean, we did a piece about it earlier in the week. There was I think four passes from their forwards in the first half and 18 of them in the second half, and I know that was a result of having more possession etc but it also showed them go into that style of play that that works for them now obviously it's about balance but I think there's an encouragement in that Munster as we're going to get to for me got the balance far too in uh, you know one-sided in one direction towards that conservative element of it Ulster are going to need bits of that obviously but they also have these tools that allow them to throw a different challenge at that incredible Leinster defence they have the ball handling comfort and skill to to play those tip passes that bit of interplay which is obviously tough in the face of, of aggressive line speed which Edinburgh certainly didn't bring and, and Burns mentioned there they'll be really annoyed with themselves discipline wise for letting Ulster back in the game the, the poor bench impact in in contrast with, with Ulster's but there's little bits there that that certainly give them a bit of a bit of 
hope I suppose and a bit of encouragement for this final they they have a, a formula a template it was really interesting Bernard raised it in our WhatsApp thread during the week like let's have a look back at the game last year in that European quarter final and, and looking at the formula that was apparent there there was elements of the kicking game I'd kind of forgotten Jacob Stockdale going up and winning over the ball over Adam Byrne and even in the closing stages from Ulster you saw them get that right they'd lost aerial contests in the first half poor escorting just not knocked uh, decisive enough in the air but you saw Stockdale go and win back two of those box kicks obviously crucially for the final penalty um, so it was really encouraging for them to turn it around and, and do some things well that they're going to have to do even better in this final I still think it's a, a major concern at how wasteful they have been in the opposition 22 even in that second half they got themselves in good positions and, and didn't have the clinical edge to, to finish chances but they got their key guys like Kutsia and McCluskey as always firing you saw James Hume coming into it uh, Stockdale obviously when he moved out to the left wing that was a, a good tactical shift and the back three worked a lot better little over on the right hand side using his footwork and I thought Lowry did well at fullback as well so there was loads of little um, sparks involved in that turnaround but as Bernard mentions mentally is probably the most important to, to come into a final with that sense of momentum is, is really big Yeah Bernard I was going to ask you for uh, your standout performers I guess and it was a lot of the big names like traditional big names in that squad that stood up but I specifically wanted to ask you about James Hume kind of felt like he was maybe a little bit of an unsung hero in that game I know he got you know plenty of plaudits on Twitter and the like afterwards but um, just a young guy and his impact on the game was absolutely massive yeah and again he's only going to get better I think um I suppose like a lot of other people, I, I was picking up on the positivity that was coming out of the Ulster camp about him um, in this preseason, particularly. Uh, he's been kind of on my radar a little bit for a couple of years, but definitely um, he, he got the impression speaking to uh, and listening to Ulster coaches and, and players that, you know, he had the qualities to to come in and make a big impact. And, and probably his first two games, he was he was reasonably quiet and, and that's understandable. Um, you know, it's a, it's a big step up and he's finding his feet. Um, but I certainly thought uh, the other night in Edinburgh was, um, was, a, was a real, I suppose, he laid down a marker in terms of where he's at and, and the potential he has. And again, you know, it's exciting. It's another homegrown player coming through um, who looks like he has the, the tools to, um, to play at this level. And, and Gives him a little bit more power um, alongside Matluski. Um, and, yeah, he's definitely exciting. I thought a little in fairness to him. Took his try really well. Looked really sharp. Um, and, yeah, I thought Lowry, well, didn't get many touches when he came on. Had a had an influence as well. And, and I do like the look of that Stockdale on the left wing. Lowry fullback and, and little on the, on the right wing. I just think, I think to, to beat Leinster, you can't be overly conservative. And you do need... Um, players with X Factor and I think Lowry has that so uh, I'd like to see him in the team this weekend um, he did play in that game uh, you know in the Viva a year ago um, in the quarter final when, when Ulster did ask a lot of questions of, of Leinster and were probably unlucky to, to lose it was you know high profile mistake by Stockdale over the line when he didn't put it down and uh, took a great kick near the end from, from Ross Byrne to, to win it for Leinster so you know they had a good variety in their kicking game. I, I think that's the. I know. I know. I put it on a group, whatever. But I think that's the. That's the game to look at because with a European quarter final, um, you have time to really develop a game plan for a team like Leinster. And 
I think the other games we've seen since and before that Dan McFarland has coached Ulster, it, it's hard to read too much into them in terms of how Dan sees uh, the, the best game plan, or what Dan sees as being the best game plan to beat Leinster, because normally in, the, in his Pro 14 games, Ulster have sent very young, inexperienced teams to the RDS, um, and you know, and Leinster haven't sent their full strength to Ulster, or Ulster haven't been primed, or they've just tried to implement what they do on a on a normal, you know, seven-day turnaround. Whereas I think that game, and that's why I went back and looked at it, is it gives you an insight into what Dan McFarlane, um, what Dwayne Peel saw as the perfect game plan to implement. And it was very close to pulling off a, an unbelievable shock, and uh, would have been an incredible result. And probably a year too early for Dan, really, in terms of what he needs, in terms of you know, squad uh, development and developing the, the young Ulster players we're seeing now, but also the recruitment, you know, to bring in those two halfbacks, I think, is is massive. It's, and it's a, it's a great bit of business. Madigan, obviously, I'm not, I'm not saying Madigan should start, but what he did the weekend um, is classic Ian Madigan. He's a clutch kicker. And, uh, you know, if you want to win knockout rugby, um, uh, you know, there's times when everything else... Is, is equal and you just need your goal kicker to to nail, nail them. Um, but I thought Matchison put him in the right areas. As soon as they went level um, and was heading for extra time, Ulster were very composed. And it came from Matchison and, and Ferenc Stockdale won back two kicks, which got him into the Edinburgh half. And, and from there, you know, they, they obviously Edinburgh infringed. But um, for me, along with, a good, you know, a la- the reason they were competitive and, and were unlucky to beat, Len- not to beat Leinster was... From their set piece was good. They pressured Leinster's kicking game. You know, uh, Treadwell got a try from a block down against Ringrose. But in terms of attack, I I really noticed that Cooney was 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 having a little run off Rooks and interest in that first and second defender. And then they were their forward runners were coming hard off inside third defender, um, and they were getting over the gain line. So many teams against Leinster, you know, off an edge they played three forwards on a on a slight overs line try and open up the blind side and they just get swallowed up and smashed back and then you look, you're on the back foot whereas what Ulster were really good at was mixing it up against Leinster that day and their forward runners they sacrificed uh, I suppose creating space down the blind side to run hard off nine uh, into those little pockets that uh, we saw Doris make a few little half half breaks against against Munster running that line and uh, you know definitely that's something I would say they'll try and copy and and um, it just depends who plays nine. You know, is it, does, do they go with Cooney or, or Matchison? I, I just think just to hammer that home, that's a brilliant point, Bernard. Like that is a key feature that stands out again when you said go watch this game, lads. Because I'd kind of forgotten before that Cooney wasn't really a, a scooting nine. I mean, it wasn't his his most obvious feature in his game, but that was really the kickstart kickstarting of it, where he realised you know I can be a real threat here. Dwayne Peel had been challenging him to do it, and clearly it was a major part of the. The tactical plan and it's something that as we saw again to go back to last again Munster didn't do it at all I can't I can't even think really of of Conor Murray picking the ball and even taking a dart at the Leinster defence and it, like if you can't challenge them like they spread across the pitch so well there's always nearly always 14 or 15 men on their feet they're extremely selective in when they jackal so they're not wasting bodies in the breakdown and if you can't kind of condense them or or pose a little challenge around that with some subtlety we saw what happened like the image of Tyburn getting smashed backwards being asked to carry one out with nothing around him 
really and and in a position that he's not that comfortable in it's just not going to work against the the power and the the defenders on feet that Leinster have so I think that's a really key point and it's it's great that uh, Ulster have I guess shown themselves and Leinster that they can challenge them in that way yeah just to focus on Mads as well Murray because it's a great story I think everybody was delighted for him uh well everybody in Irish rugby was certainly delighted for him and I just wanted to talk about that last kick like the first kick from the touchline is exceptional right but Correct me if I'm wrong here, like, the winning penalty, I think, is right at the edge of his range. Like, he doesn't have quite a nuclear boot on him. He's very accurate. Um, but probably largely due to his body shape, even his skeletal composition, I think 50, 51 yards is probably his limit. And, like, he hits the ball at a... <clears throat> excuse me. He hits the ball at a trajectory in which he ekes out every available centimetre. Like, I think if he starts off a yard higher, that kick drops short. It was like a three iron that he drills to the pin, you know? And like for anyone who hasn't ever played a, a full rugby match, and granted I'm only speaking from like rank amateur perspective, it's incredibly difficult to generate basically 100% of your kick capacity with the final act of a game because your legs are in funky town. Like, So all in all, I just thought it was an even more impressive kick than it seemed. Like everybody was obviously celebrating it and it was amazing, but like it wasn't just a hit and hope either. Like it was actually expertly executed, I felt. Yeah, it is, and, and mentally it's obviously a, a major challenge. Again, we saw in the Munster match where JJ Hanron missed probably the, the second one more so, that a kick that he would expect to get, and the first one even, uh, given his kicking su- success this season, he, he would have expected to get as well. But it is tough in those big moments, in big games, um, and you've got to hold your nerve, and Madigan is good at that. Dan McFarland said afterwards, he's big time. We've seen him do it before, even when things weren't going well in Bristol, uh, last season it would have been he, he came off the bench a couple of times and nailed two big kicks for, for the team he's shown he's well capable of and he seems to really enjoy doing it I thought it was interesting that he mentioned that Alan O'Connor came over to him just before and, and told him he loved him uh, just to give him that little bit of extra encouragement but uh, yeah huge moments from a guy who's going to take his time for me to I guess find his feet fully again he hasn't had a good Obviously, things didn't go great for him in, in the end in Bristol in terms of playing and Callum Sheedy's rise, but he really stuck at it. And all the reports out of Bristol were that he was exceptionally positive influence behind the scenes, even when he wasn't being picked. And similar in Ulster, I mean, Billy Burns was talking about the experience that Madigan has and, and what he himself and Matthewson have added in that sense. I don't think Madigan is there with it the rest of his game yet. For me, he's probably playing a bit a bit deep and um, that'll come in time where he's more comfortable uh, with the game plan and everything you can see even on his wrists in the matches now he has a lot of plays on, on the wristbands just to remind himself in the heat of battle where he's going with those different um, positions on the pitch so that'll all come with time you would hope but yeah this is what this is what Dan McFarlane brought him in for th- those kind of moments um, and the same for Matthewson again really impressive a guy who we discussed it before and I think Bernard called it as a, a big blow for Munster losing him at the time when, when the RFU um ruled against him re-signing so not as much of a surprise I suppose to see him having a, an early impact and it is good to have those two guys um, really pushing already and, and vying for spots. Mm, we're going to wrap back around with Ulster later on when we're chatting about Leinster as well. Just wanted to finish part one if you like on Edinburgh Bernard because it feels as though they now find themselves at a similar juncture to where Ulster found themselves prior to the game last weekend in that They've had a European quarterfinal and now a domestic semi-final that they'll feel they should have won, but they left behind them or, or that they underperformed ultimately. Um, where do they go from here? Like, can, Is there a danger that they 
become nearly men, I suppose, and, and don't quite kick on because these defeats, that one to Munster, this one just gone to Ulster, can produce a, a sort of a mental tax in a way and, and become hang-ups over time. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And I think Cockrell will be really worried about that. I mean, he's improved the team no end through, through a lot of hard work, through a very, um, I suppose, uh, strongly implemented game plan. A uh, big focus on set piece. He's been given the backing to bring in, you know, five or six really good foreign players. Who, when you when you mix them in with the amount of Scottish internationals they have, you know, they have decent depth. Um, and I think he probably feel they're a little bit undercooked. I, I think maybe he'll regret um, not playing the same team um, two weeks in a row. Uh, for uh, so obviously the second game against Glasgow, he did quite a bit of rotation, and, and he probably feel that that was great for squad depth but in terms of actually having guys up to speed uh, we, I, I think it's common knowledge that the, the UK pl- uh, players are, are, are had a more difficult time um, in, in pre-season and I think he probably he'll regret that that decision now because obviously they didn't finish the game very well and, and Ulster Dan had sent you know a strong team out three weeks in a row and I think that probably um, paid off for them so I think Edinburgh can get over the over the line. I mean, um, they play good rugby, uh, so they're not just a set piece team. So they have the 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 skill set and the and the game plan to go to go threaten. They've got some really dynamic players, and they just have to move on and learn from them and make sure that they're consistent in in whatever format next season looks like and get to the knockout stages again and get that hurdle off their back. Uh, just on Ulster, an interesting one about John Cooney and Matchison. And obviously, it's very small um, data or, 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 or sample set to look at. But how comfortable is John not being the clear number one? Um, and does that affect his game? So, obviously, in Leinster and Connacht, where he had a lot of competition, we probably didn't see the player we saw, we've seen over the last couple of years in Ulster, um, where he's been clearly number one. Um, and I just wonder is that an issue for him that he has to overcome? That's that pressure around, you know, having internal competition, uh, and it could be nothing, uh, but it's just something I thought about the other day because he hasn't been at his best. And again, as I said, it's it's only a couple of games, and uh, he is a class act. But uh, I just wonder is he somebody who is 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 a lot better when you know he's clearly number one. How would that pressure manifest itself then, Birch? Is it like even overthinking decisions that would have been coming nearly instinctively in the past, be it in training or games? Like, yeah, I, well, just some some players, and it's not very many, um, and it doesn't. It's not a. It's not supposed to be a slight on anybody. It's just, you know, they like to be clearly the the alpha male in the room, and and you know everything is geared towards them. They set the team up um, as the, as they like, and you know. John obviously has a, has gets an added bonus of being the goal kicker and, and standard goal kicker, but you add in Matchison, who's obviously you know a quality player, has his own ideas around how the team should play, um, is influential in the dressing room, and we know you know that was a big part of the reason Munster wanted to keep him was how he brought on the rest of the players, but also how he saw opposition strengths and weaknesses pre and during game, and now you got Madigan, who's a clutch goal kicker. You know, it's just it could be nothing, and it could be just you know. Um, it might not have any influence on him whatsoever, but I just think it's probably a question worth raising now um, and just watching it unfold and see see is it is it relevant or not. Absolutely, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. It could be a kick up for the, a kick up the arse for him as well. Um, the Ulstermen stood up so 
And Munster didn't lie down by any stretch of the imagination, but they were certainly put to sleep by Leinster, who delivered another knockout blow to their southern neighbours. I would actually, frankly, rather talk about Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and the Green Party, Murray. Um, but <laughs> look, uh, and in fairness, you absolutely delved into this with Owen Toolan on the members' pod as well on Monday. You dissected Munster's performance fairly comprehensively. And a lot of people will have been mulling this over, reading about it, listening about it, and so on over the week. So we don't want to become too fixated on it. We need to talk about Leinster as well, obviously, uh, and other matters. Um, I wanted to start with a question, like, which is, well, is it a question or kind of just a suggestion? I'm not sure. But like the tactics for which Munster are, are being slaughtered at the moment, when you deploy these tactics and patterns it'll lead to moments from which you can potentially turn the screw a little bit inevitably like against any team it should but monster distinctly failed to do that when those opportunities presented themselves i felt and then that that failure kind of like via osmosis makes those tactics and patterns look very outdated if you know what i mean so like to your mind how bad was it uh from the beginning or from the get-go if you know what i mean like in terms of how they were set up or was it more so that they didn't actually do the tactics justice if that makes sense or they didn't quite um uh, they didn't quite come good on some of the promise that the tactics might have offered them had they executed better yeah it's a bit of both really as as always they they didn't execute well on the game plan they decided to go with some success under the box kicks but a lot of times it didn't work out as planned either a poor kick or Leinster getting a better escort or a better aerial reception and feeling the ball the line out from Munster like this was one of the worst line out performances of the season and in a game plan where that's going to be absolutely essential that's so damaging you think of Scott Fardy stealing two Baird got one Toner got one Leinster deserve credit for that obviously Munster got into decent positions early in the game but again Leinster are a pretty good defensive side as we mentioned and, and they turned over Dialende they won a couple of scrappy balls off line outs um, and Munster weren't able to turn that early pressure I suppose our territory into more than the three points I just thought and I've watched it back a number of times now and, and tried to be really um, level headed I suppose and, and and look at exactly what they've done but I just still find it so disappointing that there was nothing else to the plan box kick is always part of Munster's plan always and, and I've no issues with it like we often talk about the success of it and, and how it's a key part of of rugby and and yeah, obviously sometimes it's a bit boring, but I, I personally don't mind teams using that. Just to have that as the prime tactic for me didn't make sense. And, and I went back and I look at all the, the set-piece stuff and like even their mentality off scrums. There's five attacking scrums in the game and and really they just don't fire a shot even from that source. Um, like I have a list of them here, but basically there's just no intent. There doesn't seem to be any invention in the strike plays. There's no ambition to actually try and test Leinster in a position like that where you know there's backline against backline the forwards are tied into one area of the pitch and you can have a go maybe before you before you kick but for me the mindset was always in those early phases to to kick the ball as I mentioned before when their forwards were getting out muscled near the gain line it obviously underlined the lack of ball carriers they have in their pack and that's an issue obviously for them moving forward Obviously, they were missing a couple of key guys through injury, but so too were Leinster, we, we have to say that. And there was just a, a lack of subtlety for me in, in how they tried to do it. You're you're not going to get a huge amount of success bashing down the door against Leinster. They know that, but 
again to go back to the image of Ty Byrne maybe running into double or triple tackles was just hugely dispiriting um, and I just thought they, they got the balance it was far too um, gone on the, the conservative side for me on that box kicking focus and the territorial focus I absolutely understand that that's massively part of particularly knockout rugby and Munster perceived as being a strength based on what they did in the air two weeks before but there has to be some balance in your game like obviously other teams like the Springboks kick heavily you saw Faft Kirk doing it repeatedly but they had more to their game they obviously had a pack full of savage ball carriers and a, and a bench full of them as well but there was there was moments where they're attacking um, inventiveness I suppose flourish and you saw it in the final even with Mapimpi and, and Colby scoring tries really nice tries so there was more balance to their game as well so there, there's loads in it but I just can't get over a, a disappointment that there wasn't more to the plan yeah that's fair that's fair I mean to be honest it, it's uh, I have my head in my hands here but uh, Bernard like even speaking to you guys directly after the game uh, on WhatsApp like I was saying to Murray if you were re-watching it because I certainly wouldn't be to try and if the stats weren't there to, to count how many times Keith Earls and, and Andrew Conway got ball to hand directly from a pass I mean because obviously you're, you might get the odd scrap here and there with a the loose ball and Murray tweeted out the stats uh, they were pretty appalling from Monster's point of view I think and but also I think they were symptomatic of uh, my biggest issue with the defeat and like I know my issue doesn't matter but I think a lot of Monster fans would share it which is that like whatever about the game plan to begin with it was so patently obvious that it wasn't working and yet there was absolutely zero signs of any kind of adapt adaptation or improvisation uh, it was you know flogging the bones off a dead horse uh by the hour mark and even in the last five or so minutes when they did switch it up slightly albeit leinster at that point were preparing for ulster basically they they did kind of make inroads um uh, what did you make of that even from a coaching point of view you're you're watching this kind of surely thinking what the hell is going on look it's it's uh, here's my take on it so it's, it's third week of the season third match of the season um monster have a five day turnaround they you know they they um they beat Connacht it's a bit of a messy game i thought it would have got a bit of confidence out of that they go in monday morning and the coaches have to present a plan to beat a team that the players probably feel they're not good enough to beat, right? That's the reality of it, given how the games have unfolded over the last 10 years. Um, there has to be serious doubts in that Munster dressing room if they're if they're good enough to beat Leinster. So Johan and his coaching team have to give them some evidence uh, and a plan as in how they're going to do that. And obviously, two weeks beforehand, they had got some change out of the, uh, those contestable kicks. And I think that had to be part of the, of the first half strategy. Um, and after that, obviously, the problem is, the only problem with, with, with condoning that is, if you look at two years ago against Saracens in the Viva, um, they basically had plan A, which was to kick a lot of contestables off nine. And even when there were more than a score down in the last 20 minutes, they just kept putting contestables into the Saracens 22. And, and Saracens are probably, you know, as good as Leinster um, at dealing with that. And they got no change out of it. So... That was the only real concern, sorry, that was one of the areas of concern for me was that either at halftime um, or, and in fairness, like, they were probably they were probably happy to be still in the game. It was only 10-3 um, at halftime, so, um, you know, I can understand to a certain extent why they still kept an element of that, 
But the conditions, there was a heavy downpour before the game, which again should have played into Munster's tactic. And I think it actually, I think Leinster, it, it made Leinster more conservative back, if you get me. Um, so obviously it's hard to do anything really productive off a contestable kick, even when you catch it clean, just because your forwards have to reload. But I think if the conditions were a little bit better, Leinster would have been a bit braver. And potentially the game would have been, you know, uh, the, the margin of victory would have been even bigger. But what probably is a real killer for Munster is that none of the, none of the senior players, Connor or, or, or Chris, probably pretty early to be asking the land but Keith Earls, um, etc., you know, CJ, at some stage during that second half at worst, he probably could have gone a little bit earlier because I think after 20 minutes it was pretty clear that Leinster had shored up any apparent deficiencies in that area from two weeks ago. And he's changed it up a little bit. And I I totally agree that Munster don't have a front five who can get you on the front foot, bar maybe bar Tyg. Um, but I wouldn't really see his strength as being off nine and be a little bit wider. Um, but you have Delande and Chris Farrell, who you can use as auxiliary forward carriers as such. And... Um, there was no evidence of wanting to do that. Like everyone speaks about how good Chris was the previous match, and he was great. Um, but a lot of it was just physically. It was just getting over the gain line. You know what I mean? And for him to get over the gain line, you got to feed him the ball, and you can either do that off ten or off nine. But they didn't really do that. Obviously, they didn't use the land they well. Um, you know, particularly after he got choked by by Sexton and Co. Um, and it just seemed that they were really comfortable. In slowing the game down, there wasn't massive intent. I didn't think in their in their kick chase. Um, I thought it was a really weird performance from Munster in that it was kind of like they were just happy to to contain and be competitive, uh, and there was a lack of belief in that they were going to win. And and so that, that's that's the question mark I ask around senior players around you know changing strategy uh, when obviously the first one isn't working. And then secondly, the worry for Munster is, and like, there's no way, so everyone's blaming Johan, right? But there's no way Johan, you know, he set up obviously the overall strategy and that's probably, that's his responsibility. But there's no way he said to the Munster backs, look at, we don't want to have a go off scrum or line out. Like they, there's definitely, because uh, he just wants to get in the front foot. If they get in the front foot, they're going to keep playing. It's only really when they've been met behind the game line that they're looking to, um, to obviously go to the air so that's the worry for me is that uh, you know and obviously they've had a long lockdown they've had a lot of zoom sessions they've been together for quite a while i mean there's no team at any level who doesn't spend time under set piece attack and uh, that that's the worrying thing is that they didn't really have a plan to how to identify weaknesses in the lens defense and then go and execute it they just looked like they were running stock standard you know backline strikes with not real great detail or accuracy and getting caught behind the gain line, which again fed into this necessity to to try and reverse the pressure and, and, and go to the air again. Yeah, that's spot on, Bert. Like, think of the last gun play. I think it was 71st minute where Rory Scanlon ends up just running into midfield after a pass about five, almost 10 metres kind of vertically down pitch. And you're like, what What was that? Or I think of another one where they had... They had Three three players kind of vertically stacked, but none of them was swinging out. And you're like, where where's the detail of the all these Zoom sessions you've been talking about? I mean, the amount of stuff we heard from 
multiple players and coaches saying oh my god we've got so much detail from Stephen Larkham his incredible rugby brain over lockdown we've had this amazing period all the internationals together but for me like there was just no evidence of that I didn't see any progression in that sense and in fact I saw a regression from two weekends ago when we when I felt there were kind of hints of it there was little bits of shape there were little bits of creativity in, in some of the face play they got Chris Farrell and Dialende on the ball in their face play as you say those two guys are, are really important carriers you saw when Dialende got a chance uh, obviously he got choked by Johnny Sexton a poor pass I thought from Murray where he has to kind of jump and then his carry's poor but in the second half he but runs yeah, Chris, Chris needs to come in Chris is late on the latch there as well so like we all blame there's the Lande, but there's, there's details there's, it's not just him um, and, and, and that's that's the key so like if you sign Chris Farland and Delande and you know what their strengths are, that's the scary thing is is around is around actually using them and their strengths because they're playing these lateral passes and actually taking them and making it very easy to defend against. Like I, I just on this, sorry to cut across you, but if Larkham is that good, right? Um, well, then the players need to start taking some some ownership for it uh, because mm. I think to be honest, I think some of the players threw Felix maybe a little bit under the bus. Um, and it's easy to blame the coach. So, like, if Larkham and Felix can't get it out of them, well, then maybe they have to look at themselves and actually demand and, and set standards a little bit higher because, look, at what, what we saw last weekend isn't, isn't good enough. And, um, and that's, that's the level that we have to judge Munster against, you know? And uh, I, I think the questions have to be asked around the players. Now, in fairness to the board or whoever's involved in finance in Munster Rugby, you can criticise them for lots of other areas around club game and player pathways, etc. But in terms of giving that group of players the coaching setup to be successful, like you can't blame anybody for going out and getting Razzy Erasmus, uh, Jacques Nainabar, and obviously they lost him, uh, lost both of them for for obvious reasons. Going back to the box, but they replaced them with with Johan, who was you know has a very good CV, and then you know whatever, they didn't feel that Felix and, and Flannery or whatever happened there, they went out and got Roundtree and Larkham. And, like, so they have backed them. And then they went, this, this summer, they went out and got Slime and Delandy. Like, they can't do much more, you know? There's a, there's a crop of players there who, for the last seven or eight years, have been together. Um, and it's, it's, it's shit or get off the pot, really, you know? Because I think, and I, I think the, the, the next step is to just blood, start blooding some of those Good, good under twenties we've seen over the last couple of years, and hope that they can go on and, and and get the job done at the highest level. Yeah, that's that's massive as well. Like we we do tend to focus on coaches, obviously, uh, post these big games, but there is that player responsibility. And and you think of say two guys like Conor Murray and Peter Mahoney who didn't have good games on this big occasion and made errors and didn't provide those outstanding bits that you you rely on your big players to provide in big games and. I don't know, there just there wasn't that energy from the players. You know, you're talking about giving the players a, a plan they believe in, but it almost didn't look like that at times. I felt they were going through the motions even with the kicking game. Um, and that was a, a real disappointment as well. So, yeah, there definitely is responsibility on players there as well. So, if, if the players don't, don't... So, the players played like they don't believe and didn't believe in that plan, right? But you have enough experience there that on Monday, you know, um, or Tuesday, they say, look, at lads, that's, that's, that's not going to fucking work against Leinster. We need to play a bit more... And then you, they go out and actually buy into it. Like, there's too many of them had average games um, uh, to actually challenge Leinster. So, but it's very easy. Now, Johan's the one getting all the blame at the moment. Um, but the reality is, like, they, there's enough experience there for them to take ownership. And games, 
games change mid-flow. You know what I mean? Like I guarantee you, Leinster over the last in the, those 26, 27 games they've won, there's been times they've gone off script a bit, and players individually within that have gone off script because they they see an opportunity. And again, there was no evidence of of that last last weekend. So I think look, it could be a really good thing for Munster if they if they actually learn a lot from this and become better. Doesn't you know? It's it's probably good in the long run rather than just getting a fluky win and actually having all these underlying issues beneath that and not actually going on having a run of success. But um, I do think the time for for blaming uh, coaches um, has to stop now and they just need to look at themselves and their own standards and their own ambition and own leadership structures to to make sure that they don't just keep bottling, uh, not bottling in fairness, but missing out on opportunities at, uh, in knockout mm, stages. And we're holding them to a high standard. Obviously, Leinster one of the best teams, but I agree with you. I think Leinster would be frustrated at moments they let slip in this game and and the fact is that Munster constantly as an organisation talk about holding themselves to a trophy winning standard like Ian Fanagan came out and said it again recently we, we want to win the trophies and, and that's why we got to judge them again so I, I don't yeah, think we're being yeah, but Murray let's be honest harsh. like there's a chance there's a chance Munster can win a trophy without having to beat Leinster like Leinster lost a couple of years ago to Scarlets in a, in a semi-final and Munster you know lost to Scarlets so um, and who knows? It could be an upset end of a European Cup draw, and, and it's cup rugby for the knockout stages. And Leinster can lose a match. They're obviously on a phenomenal run mm. at the moment, but the reality is, you know, sporting teams lose, and uh, uh, at some stage. So Munster, it's all well and good saying Leinster have this, that, and the other. Concentrate on what you have um, mm. and maximise it. And look at if, if they don't look at Munster built up a, a following, uh, a massive following, and a movement before they won in two thousand six. Do you know what I mean? There was there was lots of failures uh, before that, but it was the manner in which they they played, which I suppose grabbed the attention of of the of the public. So, and that's the problem. That's the problem. I don't think any Munster fan will be overly critical of Munster losing to Leinster because they understand they're the underdogs at the moment. But the manner of last weekend is is a killer. And I look, I don't think, and again, not focus on one game, but I, I don't think that can happen again. You know, uh, I think that has to change. Mm. And they got to seize that opportunity. You mentioned it there. There's a crop of young guys who are certainly more dynamic and, and can add in the pack. And again, we're not saying lash 15 young lads in there. It's got to be a mix and they've got to develop that side gradually but smartly. But look at someone like Shane Daly. He's 23 now. I know he's a bit older than some of them, but he's one of the real bright sparks of the last three weeks. A guy who cares passionately about playing for Munster and got his chance, albeit probably through injury, for, for Mike Haley. And took it and was one of the better players. So there's positive there, and and you would hope that going forward, guys like Keenan Knox, Salanoa, two really dynamic tight heads, obviously have a low low to learn. Thomas O'Hearn, a guy who has that bit of X factor. John Hodnett, who we've mentioned. There's several guys who need to really be in the mix. Craig Casey getting starts and adding that unbelievable energy and intent uh, every time he plays for Munster. So looking forward, I suppose that's that's what they've got to focus on. Yeah, and, and, and again, it's about like. If they're not good enough, if those lads aren't good enough to play Pro 14, um, you know, I, I'll eat my hat. They are good enough to play Pro 14 because if they're in mm. Leinster, they would have played it already. And you play, you don't put them all out in one go. You know, you, you mix them in amongst some some experience, and they're probably going to win anyway. You know what I mean? And uh, but they need that. And also, if you look at the whole thing about giving giving players a, a, a shock to the system, I think potentially there's two. You're guaranteed your position in, in Munster, or have been for the last while. Um, if you were established, and uh, you, you know, you saw Dan, he wasn't afraid to, you know, to start Tom O'Toole and Eric O'Sullivan the other night, um, for example, just two two examples, um, and you know, it puts it puts everyone on their toes. And I think 
whatever format we have for for Pro 14 or Pro 12 for the next couple of months, um, you, you just like to see those guys blooded and see if they can if they can unearth two or three more proper first teamers plus the addition of the Land Day and Snyman, you know. Then, then they're not that far away. Yeah. Sorry, Gav, we got carried away there. You haven't even gone off on one yet. No, man, you've done all the talking <laughs> for me. I feel great now after listening to that. Uh, it, it was therapeutic, as I predicted. Predict. If was that easy. Oh, I know, I know. Yeah. If teams, if teams could, uh, could win tournaments based on bar stool conversations, yeah, um, yeah they'd be trophy cabinets full all over the world. Well, Munster would be perennial winners of the of the of the double. I think at that point. Um, obviously, we need to chat about Leinster as well and what they did well. Even though they, I felt as though they were a little bit off color for a lot of the game, I, I don't know. Was part of that maybe just. Unfortunately, from the Munster perspective, again, uh, Leinster nearly being dragged into a sense of security that just turned out to not be false, if you know what I mean. I, I don't know that Leinster maybe um, They probably weren't forced to, to move up the gears so much. Murray, Caelan Doris, he made exactly twice as many metres from carries as the entire Munster pack, which is a, a good day at the office, but particularly kind of outstanding when you consider it wasn't a game uh, brimful of line breaks by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, he's really upped his level, I think, over the last, even over the last um, few weeks. We were doing a, a pre-lockdown yeah, podcast, you, Bernard, and myself, uh, where we were picking, I think, the Ireland team for the next Rugby World Cup, must have been a slow news day. And like, there was a debate at that point, you know, like, I think I might have even have gone for Deegan over Doris, or at least I kind of said, I think I enjoy watching Deegan more, but Jesus, Doris is really... Um, I don't know, he has taken things up a notch and was absolutely sensational on Friday night. Mm. Yeah, I genuinely think it's a continuation of what he's done for the whole season. Like, that's the most impressive aspect for me throughout this 2019-20 campaign is how dominant a figure he's been around the gain line for such a young guy. He really relishes or seems to relish the the bits where he has to be in the trenches, like try-line defence. You saw him and Keller smashing people in those areas, those young guys who maybe wouldn't be expected to do that. Obviously, going forward as well, he did it particularly well. But he has a lovely kind of toolbox for it. You could see him pirouetting at stages, using his footwork, really good fight, obviously, through the tackle. Um, and that desire to eke everything out of the carry was really good. He had a link pass at one stage, made some good decisions around pick and goes. He's comfortable in wider channels as well. But just when he's able to win so many collisions, you, you love having him closer to the ruck. Um, so there's a lot to his game. Jackal turnovers. He's good in the line out as well, which is a massive tool for any back row. Six foot four, so he's very useful in that department and, and a really complete player. For me, he's a really complete number eight. And, and Jack Conan's obviously returned and adding a huge amount, but Doris just gives you a, a complete back row package there. I thought he was excellent again. Yeah, he had a couple of errors early on in the game. That kind of summed up where, where Leinster are. They're still making errors. They're still giving up a lot of sloppy penalties. And that'll frustrate them. But even you mentioned there in terms of the line breaks. like They had the two line breaks that happened in this game. And I just thought they showed that bit more invention in their attacking play when they needed to, to get into the lead. You think of the scrum play from right-hand side scrum inside their own half. That's kind of standard blocker play we're seeing so much now where 12 gets the ball and, and plays a pass in behind 13 to the 10. And... Hugo Keenan is getting off his wing and uh, showing late just turning Andrew Conway in and then you're suddenly manipulating the backfield defence no, you can't see Keith Earls because he's off screen but he's had to sprint the whole way across the pitch to cover in as Daly closes up then he has to move back to the left hand side 
And then Sexton puts that kick in behind him. The variety of kicking from Leinster is really impressive. And, and listen, Earl knows he should have caught that, but he was manipulated and moved around and put in a slightly uncomfortable position. And that produces the error. And you think of the line out play where Connors and Fardy and Toner come around the corner and a lovely little loop from Luke McGrath around Fardy out the back door to his back line. And Gary Ringrose puts in a lovely grubber kick that very nearly sits up for James Lowe to score because he's beyond daily on the chase there. Um, they've made daily close up again. So even those little bits of clever attacking play that just show that detail and the planning and the thought process of let's make this monster defence uncomfortable uh, were impressive to me. They got into the lead just before halftime, a really impressive power play in the 22 where there's also a bit of subtlety to even that. You know, you think of Doris running that clever line and Keen Healy shows behind him coming late onto the ball, using his footwork to get over the gain line and they win an offside penalty. Beyond that, then they did go to the box kick a lot themselves, but they'd earned, I suppose, the, the position with a bit of a bit of spark as well. So, yeah, they're definitely not at their best. And I think they'll probably have worries around the lack of flow and the penalty count. And they're not getting to grips with the breakdown quite as much as they would want and there's frustrations for them definitely in that area, but plenty of signs of, of the stuff they do so well, including that defensive effort, which, which we mentioned earlier. I wanted to ask you as well about the kicking game, Bernard, because I would say that over the last number of years, really, Leinster have had the personnel uh, wherein uh, they could have kind of maybe capitalised on, on their kicking ability more when you consider the footballers that they have. Ringrose might be one of the best uh, midfielders, at least, uh, in the world when it comes to grubbering like he's so accurate with those uh, when you, you consider Robbie Henshaw has a serious boot on him it might be not necessarily the most kind of like cultured boot if you want to call it that but he can kick a ball obviously you have tens uh, to, for days in that squad even James Lowe we saw him deployed a little bit against Leinster or against Munster rather and I think his kicking ability is, is slightly underrated but what they've done now is they've really weaponized it it feels like and at key moments in that game where there were no line breaks like kicks led to scores ultimately Murray alluded to that Earl's moment as well um, what was your assessment of that? Um, yeah look at they've put massive time into it so I, I think if you go back to probably Leinster over the last couple of years they backed their ability in possession um, so they backed their fitness levels they backed their uh, rook technique their skill set to be able to just wear teams down a little bit like Exeter um, they felt if they got into the 22, you know, they were going to leave with points and they, they were going to fatigue the opposition so much um, that that would tell later on in the game. And probably because there was probably a legacy of Joe's kind of philosophy as well around not really much offloading, you know, back your 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 body position, your technique, your your lines of running, your subtlety to get you over the gain line and just keep to keep the ball. Um They've kind of transformed a, a little bit um, this this summer, and you know, uh, attacking kicking has become a big part of their game. And and they're, I think, they believe that the better they do that, the more they do of that, that will change the picture uh, for certain teams of of, of the the opposition's defence, and, and it may be easier to run them. Um, and I think you know they call it shaping your enemy, so they they look to put the opposition into uncomfortable positions and then exploit it uh, from from there. And um, apparently, you know, the way they train has, has cha- changed massively. So, you know, every team is doing these three or four minute blocks where, you know, the ball's in play for three or four minutes. And um, by all accounts, when Leinster did it, 
before you know one team could keep possession for three minutes because they didn't make an error. Um, uh, but now there's a and and also if you kicked it away, it was kind of frowned upon because you know they're a possession based team. Whereas you know apparently there was a, a block of, of tr- a three minute block recently with with six and a half, or six kicks in it um, and a mixture of um, you know grubbers, chips, etc. So they've and that, and by being exposed to that and that, and by by the coaches rewarding and encouraging that you know the the hidden skill sets you know Robbie Henshaw always was a footballer but we, and that was gone out of his game because it's not being used very often or um, there's the fear factor of, of doing it so you know I think I think you could see Munster looking to do it but if it's not part of how they train um, you're not going to get better at it just by having that as part a, a game plan for a team like Leinster and under pressure. So it's it's fascinating. I think it's it's going to it's going to pose a different threat to everyone they they play. Um, and to be honest, their level of accuracy has been phenomenal. It's not perfect. I mean, you know, Harry Byrne kicked one out in the full about a couple of minutes before he put the one in that Scott Penny uh, scored off. So again, it's that not going into your shell. Trusting, are you seeing the right opportunity? You seeing the space, and then, and then executing it. And uh, I, I just think they've, they've completely transformed um, that element of, of of their game, and it's, it's paying dividends because even even in a game like last weekend, which is quite, um, you know, quite lethargic and and uh, slow paced, they have that in their, in their weaponry. And you know, there was one one up one opportunity that you know they ran in their own half. Um, in the second half, and Munster tried to rush, and just Leinster's understanding. I think Sexton and Henshaw just took a catch pass, you know, and that left enough space on the outside for for Ring Rose. He probably had a two on one, and he could have put low away, but he just drilled this, you know, fifty meter grubber kick um, down into the corner. And you can just imagine the Munster, the Munster pack, you know, going back to come back to that, and that's that's really smart. And I think Leinster were very much of the opinion. You know, semi-finals about winning it, and you know they wanted to play more, and they'd be disappointed with with probably the fact they didn't. But the reality is, that, you know, they were the top seeds going in. Um, you know, they feel they they've been good enough this season to go and win a, a trophy, and the semi-finals just about getting through. Um, and you know, once they got the lead, I thought their their game management, while it was not pleasant on the eye, um, was very clinical. Oh, interesting. There's there's a question here from David Cordial, and I want to get to as many of these as we can before we wrap in a little bit. But uh, Murray, I'll put this one to yourself. Bit of a cheeky one, I feel, from David. He says, considering how well they handled them last time, is there anything to be said for Leinster sending out their second string or more? more of their second string than usual into the final against Ulster to save the big guns for Saracens. Now, he does add the caveat, does David, that he personally hates the descriptor second string. And I understand that as well, actually, in a rugby context. Before you answer the question, like when you're when you're calling Leinster's second string a second string, maybe there's a kind of a negative connotation to the term, but I, I don't think the term is inaccurate. I think our, our interpretation of it as applies to Leinster just needs to change a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I think that's interpretation is the key word for this weekend listen by all accounts it looks like Ross Byrne's going to be starting at 10 a couple other changes with Josh van der Fleer back in at open side maybe Jamison Gibson Park potentially coming in at scrum half and, and even a, a possible return for James Ryan like those changes don't vastly weaken the team obviously Johnny Sexton is the captain and, and a world-class player and we've seen what good form he's returned from lockdown in 
But Ross Byrne, let's not forget, he started semi-final wins over Munster in the last two seasons in the Pro 14. He started the quarter-final win over Ulster last season. And as Birch mentioned earlier on, he kicked that crucial penalty, which he was lauded for. He's Ireland's backup to Sexton most recently. And he's had 10 appearances in this Pro 14 compared to Johnny Sexton's two. So he's been Leinster's Pro 14 out half. And, and really, like if it comes to pass that he starts, he's earned that chance. He's been rewarded for his consistent form for coming in and out of the team at times, but constantly delivering for developing his game, even around attacking skills and, and taking the ball to the line, that decision-making on his passing, trying to improve his defence as well to, to get up to where Sexton is. I think he's improved all that stuff, has great kicking skills, as as we mentioned, that's pretty handy now when Leinster have that focus and he's a good organiser. He's He's been more demanding as a presence. So like if he starts, I know it's going to be perceived in some quarters as this is a disgrace that Leinster are resting Johnny Sexton, but there's a flip side to it where they're completely rewarding a player who's been excellent. And you saw last weekend, Hugo Keenan and Will Connors were maybe surprise picks, but they continue to do what they've been doing all season and, and deliver and perform because they know they got to seize their opportunity with so much competition in the squad. And and Leinster deserve credit for that. People are going to say, oh, this is a indictment of the Pro 14, but really it's probably an indictment of everyone else that they're not getting to that level of of squad competition and squad depth and and player quality across the board where you can make changes and it's not going to completely kill what you're trying to do so yeah it's a, it's an interesting question from from David but like if it comes to pass that there are a couple of changes I think some of them may even strengthen Leinster but they have players who are more than capable of coming in and, and making an impact. Absolutely, yeah. I completely agree on the burn thing as well. I did see a couple of journalists even um, tweeting that they hoped this wouldn't come to pass, that Sexton would be rested for the competition showpiece and what a disastrous day for the competition that would be. And it's like, well, Sexton hasn't played really in the competition all year. <laughs> and as you say, like... For, Okay, it's understandable maybe. I was saying it even last week in relation to the Pro 14 that if you have a, a provincial derby, for example, that in which one team isn't fielding their full-strength team, uh, it might be a little bit of an indictment on the competition or at least the competitiveness of it. But from Leinster's point of view, it's like tough shit. You know, we've, we've earned we've earned the right to do this because we've got a string of really excellent out-halves, one of which is Ross Byrne, who's been one of our stars in this competition for the last few years so forget about the health of the competition they have another competition to worry about so I've absolutely no qualms with Leinster making that switch if they do so um, Martin Heavey had a question in relation to this topic as well about Sexton not starting and he was asking about the league's perceived weaknesses or, or it's being uncompetitive uh, and looking for Bernard's opinion on that just because we're a little bit short on time uh, we might move on from that but we did uh, touch upon it a good bit last week Martin if you uh, have the chance to go back to last week's podcast um, just to look at this final lads and, and to get your predictions for it um, so for starters we all know I think how Leinster can and probably will win this game how I see Ulster winning it is play at a high tempo try their absolute darndest to prevent Leinster dictating terms to them nail the set piece be spotless from the tee pick their battles in the air, like read the room and put armour under pressure <clears throat> at opportune moments rather than trying to do it constantly. Be clever in how they use Kotsea. Don't just shovel shy to him and hope he punches a hole. Give him support runners. Uh, even give him an old shunt in initial contact to make some inroads. And finally, hopefully, uh, from Ulster's perspective, Leinster are just a little bit 
off the mark on the day. So all in all, a fairly straightforward task, Murray, you'll have to say. Yeah, it's simple. Just be perfect and then hope Lance Ranch <laughs> as perfect. <laughs> You've summed up nicely there, Gav, though, I think. Um, <laughs> did, Dan, did Dan give you his game plan? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good stuff, Gav. Like, give yeah. him a little shunt every now and again. Honestly, Gav, anytime you, you kind of venture with the, with the opinion, it's, it's really impressive. You should do it more often. No, 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 no. I'll pick, I'll pick my own battles as well. Well, Bernard, what, what about you? So, like, I mean, it's hard to make a case for Ulster. And I think even at the start of the show, you, you made that point. But where do you see any opportunities? No, for I, I think they, um, I, I, you're, 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 you're spot on. But I think they, the, the chance Ulster have is that they're used to playing. They do play. And again, a lot of teams, a lot of teams come to play Leinster and damage limitation and, and stay in the game and, and frustrate them. And that can, you know, that's, that's not a bad tactic. So just someone needs to execute it and, and get a bit of a break. But I, I do think the teams that um, have the best chance of, of beating them in a one-off is are the teams who who are used to playing and um, and Ulster certainly are. And they have individuals, you know, they have five or six individuals who can have big moments and um, they just need to have them. I think Stockdale is going to be key. You know, he if he gets an opportunity, he needs probably to, to score uh, and, and bring something um, bring something from, uh, you know, from maybe deep as well. Uh, and because I think Leinster, Leinster are very comfortable defending their 22 and, and uh, um, I know they conceded a try against Munster um, early doors after a lot of phases, but I think they would have rectified that. And um, I think Ulster need to take chances and, and play with weight and, and also throw offloads. You know, Stock, um, not Stockdale, uh, McCluskey's very good at getting his hands free um, and they just need to run positive tray lines off him and gamble a little bit um, because they, they have the skill set to do it. And if they do, it could be a really interesting evening. Murray, who wins the game and how do they win it? Leinster by five points. I think it'll be a bit closer than the predicted margin. But I do think they'll have those um, championship moments of resilience, I guess, and, and mental clarity in, in, in breaking down a, an Ulster defence. That is pretty solid as well and is very disciplined, which obviously helps. It helped last weekend. They only conceded eight penalties, I think, which was really impressive away from home. But we've talked about that kicking game. Players of the class of Gary Ringrose and James Lowe guys who can who can break things open um so i think they just have more strength across the board plus a, a bench that may include johnny sexton is is pretty handy as well um and i think they'll just have too much leinster for you as well birch give me a margin uh, i think 10 or 11 okay fair enough we did say we touch upon the own file thing let's do that before we wrap and i have one quick question to throw at you as well from an emailer um Look, enough has been made of, of the tackle. Everybody's seen the clip. It was kind of a, uh, horrific to watch, really. Uh, it's been on the cards for a long time, this uh, suspension. Um, I wanted to ask you, Bernard, firstly, about... Well, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on the, the length of the suspension and particularly how it was halved, ultimately, due to various off-field testimonies and so on. Like, firstly, is the five-game ban long enough? And secondly... Does rugby need to look at its procedures here? Like it just feels so old-fashioned that you're almost going into a courtroom and and charities are so speaking on yeah, behalf and so that's on. That's something and, I hadn't really seen a huge amount of before, to be honest. As in, you know, work with charities and things like that. Like, it's a bit, for me, if I, you know, the times I've been going to disciplinary hearings, um, and in fairness, I haven't been representing any players as high profile as home fire, but um, it's been around the previous disciplinary record. Um, they were the only things that were taken into account. So that was. Um, 
a little bit unusual. I actually think five, five is still a decent band, to be honest. Mm. Um, I, I think ten would have been, you know, probably too many games. Uh, realistically, it was a poor tackle. Um, he has form, but he hasn't actually got picked up on as much as he, he probably should have been. That's probably all they can, uh, all they can reference and use as information. So I, I think five is, five is okay. Um, hopefully, he learns his lesson. I think there's a huge amount of spite and anger out there for. You know, on social media and and um, people wanting to see, you know, him made an example of. But a lot of that's down to the fact that he's just a winner, and he's been in teams that win against our own favorite teams. And if Johnny Sexton <laughs> stepped out of line, there'd be massive uh, spotlight on that. I know Johnny's track record is is better than that, but I just think that's that's part of it as well. And I, I actually think five five is just about okay. Anything less would have been uh, too lenient, and and just hopefully he learns his lesson. Yeah, all of that seems fair, and I think the five-game ban might have been more palatable to people even if it had interfered with his international plans, Murray. I think just by dint of the way that the calendar is laid out and the fact that he won't miss international games makes it feel as though he's getting away with it a little bit, even though on paper five games is kind of a significant suspension in his own right. Uh, Is it something you agree with the length of it or, or would you disagree with Bernard there do you feel as, as though it's a bit too lenient he didn't like he wasn't punished for previous incidents in the last couple of years think of his no arm sackle on Esther Hayes in November 2018 World Rugby came out and clarified and used those clips to clarify that this is not a legal tackle he should have been penalised England would have you know lost the game and he would have served the price for that. A week later against Australia, there's a no-arm tackle on Isaac Rodden near the try line, no punishment. 2019 Six Nations, there's a tackle very similar to this on kick chase on Darcy Graham that was only a penalty and, and really should have been a yellow minimum, I think, given the head contact. He did have one previous ban, we should mention, back in 2016. A really dangerous tackle on Dan Robson Wasps. Uh, I think he got two games there. So that was the only previous he had and that's all the the disciplinary committee can can hold as is previous. The issue is he wasn't punished for the other offences, but like we knew this was coming. He plays so close to the edge, and I think that's one of the reasons he's so good is because he plays to the edge, and that's why everyone wants him on their team. Every player wants Owen Farrell on their team because he's such a competitor. Um, but it's just, I suppose it's set a, a tone now that he's got to change and, and he's not got away with this one as maybe has happened in the past. So you would just hope that the, the edge is slightly lower for him uh, in the future. I just think it also points to the craziness of the whole disciplinary procedure. I'd never, certainly never heard of those off-field mitigating factors getting 50% reduction, even though a player had uh, a ban before. Like they say, applying off-field mitigating factors notwithstanding his suspension four and a half years ago. It just feels like a little bit too much sliced off um, for something that we hadn't heard even discussed previously so the whole procedure as always is confusing and it's so hard to predict what's going to happen um, but five games is a, is a decent ban I suppose uh, yeah, I think we kind of all know what went down there uh, he's back in time for England and look um, maybe he'll learn a lesson who knows I want to finish with a kind of a miscellaneous email that we received but it's uh, a nice one to finish off on I think uh, hi Gavin long time listener first time stalky emailer says Jack Walsh that's being harsh, I think, considering my email address is, is quite public. I think it's in my Twitter bio, and it's nice to hear from you, Jack. And Jack is saying, well, Jack says, My missus and I love watched, loved watching Super Rugby Aotearoa, but who should we follow in the Mitre 10 Cup? No doubt Murray will be following the mighty Tasman Makos, but I'd love to hear what you guys reckon. Fins up, Jack. I have to 
confess I don't have a, a preferred team in this competition. So I, I might leave uh, yourself, Murray, and you, Bernard, sway me in one direction or the other. Um, is he correct, Murray, that you're a Tasman man? I, I love watching Tasman play. They've been really inventive and creative. I love this competition. There's slightly less pressure maybe on coaches and you see a lot of creativity in, in how they play. You see players offloading at will as well. I suppose two teams to keep an eye on are three, really. Jack Regan is going to be playing for Otago X. Ulster Academy lock he's actually on the bench for the Auckland game on Saturday one to watch and Conan O'Donnell is playing for Ca- uh, Counties Manukau again uh, as well as Ollie Yeager in Canterbury so it's always good to see a bit of Irish involvement in this competition it'll be really interesting to see how, how those three go so maybe keep an eye on those teams Bernard any preferences? Yeah I'm just purely true personal contact a friend of mine's coaching Bay of Plenty, so um, I don't think they'll, they'll win it, but uh, I'll be following them. They'll be they'll be my favourite team for this comp. Gents, thanks a million for all of that. Uh, it was a bumper episode. I got an awful lot out of my system. Uh, it was, as predicted, uh, a cleansing process. Thank you, Bernard, as always, and thank you as well, Murray. Thanks, Gav. You will be back with Own Toolin on Monday for the 42 members, I presume? Yeah, looking forward to that. There should be loads to dig into, um, and it'll be interesting to see if what we discussed here holds up and, and happens in the game. Absolutely. Members.the42.e if you want to sign up to not only Rugby Weekly Extra with Murray and Owen, but so many other podcasts that our colleagues are doing that, uh, if I do say so myself, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with really. They're, they're really good. And uh, we will be back next Thursday then in our kind of regular slot for non-members. So until Monday or Thursday, mind yourselves and take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Tommy Moe! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Little reverse pass, and oh! Oh!